Welcome to the Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Alex Chediak. Dr. Chediak is a professor of engineering and physics at California Baptist University. Uh, his articles have been featured on Fox News, Ligonier Ministries, Focus on the Family. Alex has written several really good books, uh, a series of books, helping parents and, and kids think about and prepare for college. Some really unique and helpful and important books. And his latest book is entitled uh, Beating the College Debt Trap, published by Zondervan. So today we're going to talk with Dr. Chediak about parents and kids and planning for college. He's going to offer some helpful tips on going to college, getting a good education without building an enormous amount of debt that is crippling and really kind of hurts future career options and future ministry potential. Before we begin our conversation with Alex, I'd want to remind you to check out my new book, The Original Jesus, published by Baker Books. This was a fun project to work on. In this book, I look at 10 ideas or conceptions of Jesus often found in the evangelical world and really show how many of these are partial ideas of Jesus or even false ideas. So we have things like Dr. Phil Jesus, the Guru Jesus, the Braveheart Jesus, Red Letter Jesus. This is, a, uh, I think, a good resource for someone who might be struggling with their faith or someone who might be far from the church. If you want more information, go to my website, danieldarling.com, and click on the book cover. You can't miss it. Cover is yellow. It has a bobblehead Jesus on the front. Click there and you can order the original Jesus. But for now, let's join my friend Alex Chetty. Well, Alex Chediak, glad to have you on the Way Home Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Dan. So I'm holding my hands this great new book that you've written, uh, Beating the College Debt Trap, Getting a Degree Without Going Broke. Part of a series of books you've written for parents, for uh, young people on preparing and thinking about college. So this looks like a really great resource. Before we talk about this, I want to just ask you kind of what has led you to kind of write books to help people think through the college experience? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I've kind of been in college all my life, it seems. I mean, I, I was a student for four years, went to graduate school for five years, been teaching for 10 years now. So for my adult life, I basically spent most of it in a semester-by-semester semester system. And mm. so as I look at students today, I see a lot of myself in them, but I also see different challenges that they face, unique challenges uh, when I went to college, for example, less than half of students borrowed any money for college at all. And most did graduate. The graduation rates were, it seemed, you know, closer to four years, less graduating in five. Now we have graduating in five or six is increasingly common. The cost is, is way out of control. Students, it seems on average, the level of preparation coming in isn't always what you want it to be probably because more students are going to college, and so some of those extra students that are going aren't as prepared as maybe professors would prefer they were prepared, and so they're struggling academically, they're struggling financially, and then when they graduate, they're into a market that's very uncertain. You know, for the last seven years, our economy has been in a slow mode, and so just seeing the challenges that young people face, and then spiritually, of course, the culture is very anti the, the worldview of a culture is very increasingly anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. So just seeing all those those elements really have drawn me to want to write and help young adults be successful. Mm-hmm. So you you talk in here about all the different traps. You know, mm-hmm. the the thing is beating the college debt trap. And I guess uh, 
one of the things that that people listening might be thinking is, you know, if you're a parent, you're thinking it's really important for my kids to go to college because in order to get a good job and to really be productive and make enough money to support a family and, and really to sort of fulfill whatever gifting they have, you really need to go to college. So you, they're thinking that on the one hand. On the other hand, they're thinking college is really expensive. Um, so what do we do? You know, how important is it for kids to go to college? I mean, is that a is that a myth that everyone needs to go to college? Is it a is it somewhat true? Kind of what? Yeah, what, good, what do you counsel good, people? Question. It's obviously that this is a debated subject. I, uh, I come down on the view that some form of post high school education with a credential of some sort increasingly important. And if you look at the the, the earning premium, how much more you can earn with a d- degree of some sort versus no post-high mm-hmm. school d- diploma d- certification of some sort, it's really get, getting high, in part because the high school, the prospects of someone with a high school diploma only are very low. So in other words, the earnings you can make as a college graduate aren't really getting higher and higher. It's that the earning prospects you have without a college education are getting lower and lower. Now, that being said, I don't think college has to mean four-year college for everyone. I think that's a myth. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes high schools grade themselves on what percentage of their students go to college. And when they say college, they mean four-year school bachelor's programs. Associate's programs are very strategic, only take about two years, and oftentimes have, maybe not oftentimes, but about a third, a third of the time have better job prospects mm-hmm. in terms of early earning power if you're in healthcare or technology, computers, engineering, automotive work, mechanic work, hands-on skills. Uh, associates with degrees can, can do quite well, especially in the early years, and they can then pave the way to help you be able to afford a four-year college later on. Mm-hmm. So I think it is a myth that everyone has to go to a four-year college, but I don't think it's a myth that say that everyone needs something after high school to have as by way of education, formal education, mm-hmm. and a certification at the end of it. You know, one of the things that people argue, and I think this is largely true, is, you know, beyond the practical reasons to go to college in terms of getting a credential so that you can get a job and, and have good earning power is what college can do if it's done well in terms of, you know, critical thinking and really yeah. kind of setting a foundation for life. Now, it's not always applied that way, but done well, it, it can be formative for that, right? Right, exa- absolutely. And I think sometimes students that are in, in technical programs, they undervalue mm-hmm. what liberal arts can do for them. So in other words, I teach students who are interested in computer programming, some of my students, and they oftentimes don't want to take any class that's not directly germane to that first job that they're, they're going to have when they get out. Mm-hmm. And they aren't thinking 10, 15 years down the road, whereas a broad liberal arts education is going to help you think well, mm. solve problems well, communicate well, and that's going to be increasingly important for you in your, in your lifetime. So yes, I think if college is done well, uh, it's very important. Now, the flip side of that is that the, at the state schools, at secular schools, liberal arts has, has really gotten a hit in terms of they've been watering down their curriculum. They're replacing core courses that used to be reading Shakespeare or history, U.S. history and all the, the great works, they're replacing those with fluffy courses, trendy courses, pop mm-hmm. culture courses. So in some ways, higher education has gotten itself, itself a bad name and, by those trends, but those don't express what all schools are doing. So it's important when you look at a college, where you're going to go to college, to think about the curriculum, what you're actually going to be taught. Mm. 
most kids should go to college, whether it's two or four years. So now the next question, you know, if you're talking to parents or you're talking to kids is, okay, if it's so important for my future prospect, but, but you know, college is increasingly so expensive. So how do I, I mean, how do I do this without incurring all this debt? I mean, is it even possible? And, and I guess the first sort of way to break that down, my question is, are people convinced that they only have to go to, they should only go to certain colleges, uh, you know, quote, the best colleges, which cost the most money. Otherwise, you know, I'm not going to be successful. Is that kind of a myth? That is a myth, for sure. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is where you go to college is far less important than that you go to college mm. and graduate. The single best thing you can do with regard to college is graduate. Mm. So whether you graduate from a prestigious school or a non-prestigious school, the, the difference between that prestigious versus non-prestigious school is far less than the, the difference between having that degree and not having it. Mm. So sometimes people will over-borrow for the sake of prestige. They'll go into deep debt just to say that they, can, they went to a certain school, and they think that's going to buy them uh, more opportunities. It really doesn't. They've done studies on this for many years and, and tracked students into different, as they go to different colleges, what makes the bigger difference is the student, not the school. Mm, mm. And, and so it, it's not worth spending a fortune to get a degree, but it is worth spending money to get that, to get a college education. And part of it is saving more. A lot of times Americans were not as good as saving. I think I saw a study that said we only save about 1% of our income on average. So obviously the economy has been tough the last 10 years. People can't afford to save sometimes, but if we can't afford to save, we should save. Mm-hmm. And that'll help uh, definitely lower the, the, the debt load for, for college. But it is a myth that you have to borrow a fortune to get, a, to get, a, to go, to get through college. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. And I give te- techniques in, this, in the book and tips for how to lower the cost of college. One of the things, particularly in, in the chapter about, you know, one of the traps is spend a fortune on prestige and other bad ideas. Yeah. And you talk in here, there's a second here about getting the most bang for your buck. And you really do rank you know, a couple different colleges, one a very prestigious college and one a lesser-known college in terms of earning power and everything else. And it is surprising. So do you think this is at the root of why many college students are saddled with debt, is that they've over-borrowed to go to a particular school? I think that's a big part of it. I think it's not just prestige factor. It's also just comfort factor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the way students choose a college is geared around personal comfort and a feeling they have when they mm-hmm. walk the, the campus so that they're overspending because of non-academic, non-professional factors. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I talk about is, is assessing what it's going to cost you, not just for one year, but for all four years, and, and not believing that you have to borrow. If you borrow 10000 that first year, you're going to graduate probably with 50000 or more in debt. And the ironic thing is that is that not everyone's doing that. So a lot of times students will borrow lots of money because they assume this is just the way you have to do it. The reality is one-third of all students graduate without any debt at all. And, uh, and then you have people that borrow only five, ten thousand dollars 10000 the whole thing. So the, the, the people borrowing 60000 70000 they're the top 10% of borrowers. Mm-hmm. But sometimes people hear that in the news and they normalize that experience, which is really atypical, and they assume it's common, so they end up doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's I think it's it's for prestige or it's for comfort. Those are two of the, the main reasons, as opposed to just thinking more economically about what you can actually afford. Mm-hmm. One of the things you really encouraged, and I was glad to see you say this, was consider starting at a community college and finishing at a public university. I mean, that seems to be a resource available to a lot of people that they're not availing themselves of. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you come from the lower half of the income distribution, mm-hmm. you can go to community college on average for free in the sense that the, the government grants that you're eligible for based on your in- income bracket are going to exceed the cost of tuition at those schools. So you're going to pay for living costs, but if you're living at home, they're relatively small, but they're going to pay for your tuition for you, and you can rack up credits that way and minimize the number of years you're at a four-year college. Um, that being said, there are some dangers of that path. So that one of the dangers with that path is sometimes you can get in with the wrong crowd. Uh, community college graduation rates are, on average, pretty low. And mm. so it's important to have direction and ambition and focus and just keep your eyes looking forward and get through your class as well, get good grades when you're there. Don't get caught up into a, a, a subculture that's underperforming. But, yeah, I think community college is a great tool that people have to avail themselves of. Yeah, it does seem, for instance, here in Tennessee, the first two years of community college are free, provided you go through several several steps like doing community service and, you know, some other benchmarks. One of the things that I worry about, and you addressed this a little bit, is, you know, when you go off to college, there's a sense of leaving the home. When you're staying home for another two years, you know, I guess it's probably incumbent on parents, right, to try to avoid that kind of uh, extended adult or extended adolescence that can sometimes happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to start treating your teens differently when they're 18, 19. If they're going to a community college and living at home, start developing a system with them where, okay, you're mm-hmm. no longer in high school. We expect more from you. Maybe you, maybe instead of having them, since they're living essentially for free, maybe you have some chores that you expect them to do as part of their earning their keep, and you're kind of training them for the day when they don't have to stay at home. Mm-hmm. And you kind of keep a long-term mindset of, okay, my goal for you in the next two years is to get your education well, but I also want you to start thinking about yourself as an adult, independent, responsible, self-starting, and I'm going to help treat you differently so that you are prepared for leaving the home soon. Mm-hmm. What are some other ways that people can go to college, get a good education, and, and not do it with you know mountains of debt? You know, I think online education is uh, effective for people that are already working jobs. So maybe, maybe you went to high school, graduated, and had to go into the workforce right away. You couldn't mm-hmm. go, go to college at that time for whatever reason. But now you want to get that education that you wanted to get before. Online can be a very good way to do it and not break your working schedule. But that, that's a one approach. But I think, I think public four-year schools are often very accessible in price uh, once you factor in grants and scholarships as well, especially if you're from a lower-income bracket. I wrote this book wanting to hopefully get it in the hands of people whose parents didn't go to college. So I think you're at such a disadvantage. If your parents didn't go to college, you don't know the system, you don't know how it works. It can be daunting, it can be, it can be intimidating, the FAFSA and all that. But really, there are a lot of scholarships and grants that are out there for lower-income students. And so filling out the FAFSA on time is important, and then applying to schools that are generous to people from lower incomes. Uh, one of the things I do in the book is help you find out what those schools are, and uh, especially if you do really well in high school. It can earn you quite a bit of money for college. Mm-hmm. So obviously scholarships and then grants. And then if you could talk about student loans and obviously ideally uh, – the ideal situation is to avoid loans, you know, if you can. But for some who maybe that's the only pathway, maybe just speak to that, to that right now. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the key there is to look at your earning prospects when you graduate, and what field you're going into, and what earnings people can get, can gain from those fields. Uh, you know, I had a friend I talk about him in, in the book who is a computer programmer now, and his parents told him, "Don't go to college because you can't afford it. And I don't want you to have any debt at all." 
he ended up going to college, borrowing a moderate amount of money, and making good salary when he when he came out. So it ended up being a good a good investment. I think oftentimes it can be if you keep that debt level in mm-hmm. place. So I think the first thing to do is that first year, trying to minimize your debt to that subsidized uh, federal loan. Mm-hmm. So I, the, the maximum amount for that is right now thirty five hundred dollars a year. If you can get that first year of education done for 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 $3,500 or less in debt, you're going to be at a good start. Because uh, that first year, you're not necessarily that sure of what you're going to graduate in. Mm-hmm. The career prospects, you're not yet as sure of. And there's also a chance that you'll switch your major and end up taking longer to graduate. So why start borrowing money a lot early when you'll end up borrowing a lot more later on? So I, I talk about limiting that first year of debt uh, to a low number with community college, with advanced placement courses, international baccalaureate courses, community. Uh, so there are ways to get those that first year of credits without spending a, a fortune. So the, um, the federal Stafford loan limit thirty five hundred. Uh, the, the subsidized portion that first year is a good kind of benchmark. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the four years, I, I talk about avoiding private loans because the the, the the terms and conditions in those private loans are just so difficult. The interest rates can rise rapidly and unpredictably whereas the federal loans are fixed rate, and the maximum federal loan right now is about 31000 for four years. That really should be enough. So really kind of planning it from day one, saying I want to go into this particular field. I think I can graduate in four years. I'm going to limit my early borrowing so that I have a little more room to maybe borrow more my junior year, my senior year. Maybe I have to borrow 5000 10000 a year then, but if I can limit it now, I'll be better off then. If you graduate with 15000 in debt, that's about $150 a month. Which is really affordable if you get if you if you have a job and just about any job you could afford one hundred fifty dollars a month to access that career that you want to get. So I think if you have to borrow, minimizing it early mm-hmm. and having a four year plan to minimize it relative to your earning prospects. So if you're going to be in engineering, you can afford to borrow more than if you're going to be in education, for example. Mm-hmm. You're talking here about this new idea that some have floated and has had critics and has had some supporters, the, the 10K BA uh, model. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a good goal. I think it's kind of ambitious. 10,000 in four years is really tough. But uh, it, the idea behind it, I think, is a good one. And the idea is how can we maximize technology to minimize the costs of education. So, so much of what makes college expensive, it's not that the, the presidents are sitting around saying, how can we make more money off the students? It's just that the, the infrastructure costs, the facility costs, to maintain buildings with state-of-the-art technology and wireless internet and PowerPoint in all the classrooms and LCD projectors and all this stuff that goes into having a good campus is expensive. And so if you can have, if you can use technology, online courses, courses with thousands of people and maybe uh, people assigned to grade papers for 100 people here, 100 people there, uh, you could leverage that lowering of the cost per pupil and spend less as a student. If you're motivated, if you're, if you're focused, if you have the mm-hmm. study skills, uh, you can get the degree at a lower cost. So I think the challenge, the idea of it is a good one. Making it work in all disciplines, probably easier said than done, but there are some disciplines that it works better in than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, programs that can be put online. It's, I think it's hard to learn how to be a good writer through an online courses because mm-hmm. you just have, don't have the, the attention that you need from, mm-hmm. from a professor. So as, as, a, as, a, as a face-to-face faculty member, I see the value of face-to-face instruction. It definitely is, I think, better, but it also does cost more. So can you learn s- some classes online? Can you learn 
computers online, probably better than you can learn English. So think about what you want to do and think about how you can leverage technology, especially if you're a working adult. Stopping what you're doing and going to, going to school for four years is probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. How can you chip away at online courses to, er, to increase your earning power? I think that's the spirit behind the 10K BA thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like what you said about online versus in person and some of the tensions there. I mean, online education is increasing. I've used it. I've taken advantage of it in some of the, the studies I've done and are doing. One of the, one of the things I've, I'm seeing a lot more of, and I think this could be a, a good thing, is just sort of a hybrid model. So, you know, you have some of your coursework done online, but then you also go spend some actual time in the classroom. Do you think that's a, a model for the future? Yeah, I, th- I do. I think that, that that could be very good at the graduate level education for sure. In other words, it, um, watch these videos, read these books, then come to campus for two or three weeks of intensive training, and you'll finish the semester that way. Mm-hmm. That kind of model, I think, can work with the right student population. Mm-hmm. My concern is that 18-, 19-year-olds, I don't know if they have the self-discipline mm-hmm. to stay focused and get their work done without the professor seeing them every day of the week. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know what I'm saying? So it has to be the right demographic. It has to be the right subject. But, yeah, I do think hybrid models have a lot of potential. One thing we're looking at, and a lot of Christian schools are looking at, is how they can do hybrid courses semester long where you take some of that content, you put it online, and then you uh, reduce the amount of times the students come to class, and you can leverage the space on campus better by really running twice as many classes as you did before. Each class meets half as often, and the students are still getting the same quality education, more or less. That's another model that a lot of schools are, are exploring. Okay. Uh, I like how you say here uh – there's two equally wrong traps to fall into. Beware of the college of your dreams on the one hand, and beware of undermatching on the un- other hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the undermatching problem is common among lower-income families. What happens is the students do well in high school sometimes, really good, smart, smart kids, but because they don't know how to apply for colleges, they just go to community college down the street when they really could have gotten in to some great schools that would have given them quite a bit of money and put them in a pool of, of students that would have pushed them upward in their careers, but they just didn't know they had those opportunities. So I think that's one of the things my heart is for this book is to get in the hands of people who can't imagine how they're going to pay for college or can't imagine going to college. Or I, I know students who are in high school and don't know what the FAFSA is. Their mm-hmm. parents don't know what the FAFSA is. So I think that's the undermatching problem. Is when, you, when you go to a school that is way below your, 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 your level, uh, what happens is you underperform. You, you basically... Uh, revert to the norm of that group, that distribution group, and you end up mm-hmm. taking seven years to graduate or maybe not graduating just because you're not pushed to rise up. Th- on the other hand, borrowing a fortune for prestige is the reverse problem, is assuming that, okay, unless I go to an Ivy League school or an or, or, or elite private school of some sort, uh, then I'm not going to get as good of an education, so I better go ahead and borrow 15000 that first year just to make it possible because my kid got into that school and it's, it's going to be great. Not realizing that really if they go to that state school, they're going to be just as well down the road than if they, than if they went to the private school. It's more about the pupil that, than, than the school in terms of what makes the difference. So that is the danger. You buy into the myth that you have to have the bragging right of that school, and it really is more folklore than actual than actuality. I want to talk about choosing a major. You, uh, just some of the things people should be thinking about, one of the things you warn against is kind of choosing it on a whim. you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think back in the day when people could pay for college with a summer job and pay for all of it and there was no borrowing and there was no tuition, large scholarships and grants, 
that made more sense. You kind of could find your way through college and, and pay your way through college and figure out what you were and who you were and where you were going. But it's really impractical nowadays to, to think I'm going to go to college, not really know where I'm going to use this information or how I want to work in the, in the world. I just hope I'm going to figure it out as I go along. So what, I, what I'm advocating for is more and more high school students in their families taking more time to think through what are the skills and interests of my child, what are their talents, and where's the overlap between their passions and their abilities. Sometimes young adults today are more aware of their passions and their interests, but they're not as aware of what they're good at, and, and they haven't actually demonstrated what they're, what they're supposedly talented at. So giving them chances to demonstrate their skill level and demonstrate their talent level and develop those skills before they go to college. So that when they choose a major, they're doing it with a more informed perspective on how they're going to use that major and that that major is a good fit for who they are. So that they're both realistic about the field they're going into and realistic about who they are and how they fit in that field. And that way they can start looking for, for uh, work experiences early on, even after that freshman year, that sophomore year, starting to build that resume, uh, starting to think through how can I develop a, an online presence on LinkedIn, for example, where I'm showing my skills, I'm showing what classes I took, I'm using that to try to look for summer jobs. I see some very resourceful students now who are online networking from their earliest days on college, and, and they're getting better jobs, they're getting better opportunities, and they're developing their resumes really well because they're already thinking what they want to do when they graduate. So I think that's increasingly important that you choose a major that makes sense for you and that's realistic in terms of what you want to do when you graduate. Hmm. Another tension I want to talk about is Christian colleges versus, quote, secular universities and, and how to decide. Um, you teach at a Christian college, you know? Yeah. But, you know, for some, perhaps a secular state college or university or community college might be, make more sense. Can you... Can you talk about people making that decision? Yeah, I think I think Christian schools offer distinct advantages, and in general, all else being equal, they're worth the extra money. Uh, you do get faculty who care about you as a person, and they aren't just there for their own personal advancement. They care about who you are. They care about whether you come to class. They care about helping you be successful in a way that you don't really get other schools. They share your values. They're going to encourage you to develop who you are in light of those values. So you're going to have a lot of advantages at a Christian school. Uh, the price is usually higher because they don't have the state funding that secular schools have. So th- th- that being said, I don't think people should should spend a should borrow a fortune to go there. If they, it's like it's like paying more for a car that might last longer. If you don't have the money, you can't do it. So it, it, when you shop for something, I think shopping for college is, is is an investment. You need to think about it as an investment. And if you have the extra money and you think your child can benefit from the Christian school, that's great. But if you don't, or if your child shows that they want to go into a major that the secular school has a better program in, then that makes sense as well. So a hybrid model is you could also start at a community college and then finish it at a Christian college. That's another way of doing it. Um, and, and you could have, so two years at a Christian college cost less than four years at a Christian college, and you can still get the benefits of the Christian education uh, without having spent four years of it. So there, there are ways to do it in a hybrid model in that way as well. So we've talked about the, kind of the debt, specific granular things about going to college. As, as you look at some of the um, public officials, political candidates who are addressing the college debt crisis, have you found any reasonable proposals or people who are you know, putting forward some good things to solve some of these issues? 
Yeah. Um, one of the ideas I've heard out there that I think has a lot of potential is this idea called income sharing agreements. Mm. So uh, in a nutshell, what this would be is instead of borrowing money for college, investors would buy stock in students and agree to share the profits in some equitable way. So you'd graduate debt-free, and then some of your earnings would go to your investor. Uh, it sounds strange. It sounds like you maybe you'd be an, an indentured slave for life. It w- it's not going to be that. It'd be, it'd be done in a way that it would be limited amount of time. For a limited time, some of your earnings would go to pay back what that investor uh, gave for you, and, and essentially the investor shares the risk. Because right now, the student takes all the risk when they borrow money. The college takes no risk. Uh, the, the student takes 100% of the risk, and then if the student runs into problems, he's on his own. Mm. So the, the income-sharing model would essentially offset that by saying, okay, when I graduate, I owe nobody anything except a portion of what I earn. Ironically, that, that is what we're doing now with the high-debt people. People who have a lot of debt or end up going into what's called the pay-as-you-earn model. That mm-hmm. uh, I think Obama has, uh, has made that a very popular program. Is You only have to pay about 10 15% of, of your of your earnings above mm-hmm. the poverty level. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you, end up, but you do, end up doing it for 30 years. So it ends up being a very, very long-term way to do it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's already what we're seeing happening for the high-debt uh, people and so the income sharing model, I think, is, is better because it wouldn't, you wouldn't actually owe anything if you didn't earn, earn anything. With the, the current plan, you end up still having the debt, and the debt still compounds if you don't pay your interest. So uh, just sharing the risk, I think, is the way to go. I, in terms of the candidates out there, I think they're all going to have to deal with it. They're all going to have to deal with it. They get, whoever wins is going to have to uh, tackle the issue. Uh, the one who probably knows about it the most is Marco Rubio because of his um, – I think he had $100,000 in debt coming out of law school. So I think for him, as for President Obama, it was, it's a much more personal issue in terms of what that's like to have to owe a lot of money. Um, but I, I think income sharing is, is, is a good idea in terms of – I haven't seen how it can be worked out, but, and I'm not an economist, but it, to me it strikes me as having – Good potential. That's a great word. Well, listen, this has been really good. Alex Chediak, Beating the College Jet Trap. Really encourage my listeners to get this book. If you're a parent, if you're a high school student, think about college. And not just get this book. He's written two other really great books, Thriving at College and Preparing Your Teens for College. My oldest is going to be 11 pretty soon. I'm going to start reading these books really in depth. And uh, it's a real service, I think, and gift to the to the body of Christ. There's not a lot of written specifically on this. So thank you for this. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. I want to thank Alex Chediak for great conversation and good information for parents and kids as they're thinking about and preparing for college, how to avoid debt, and how to spend those college years wisely. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending an email to wayhome at erlc.com or writing a review on iTunes or Stitcher that just helps other people find the podcast. Uh, you can also listen to previous episodes and interviews if you go to danieldarling.com and click on the podcast page. Also, I want to remind you about my book, The Original Jesus from Baker Books. Uh, might be a great resource for someone looking or seeking to know more about Jesus. You'll find a link there on my website. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home podcast. The Way Home is recorded and produced by Gary Lancaster. 
Research is conducted by David Clausen and scheduling is handled by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.